and this um we just really actually had a chance to spend time in marrakesh which was pretty amazing i mean i i you know i i i'd always i mean from the macarthur foundation board and just my personal experience i'd been interested in trying to understand climate change and biodiversity but i'd always been sort of presented bits and pieces of it and i sort of understood theoretically but sort of two things happened as i was sort of preparing my talk for this conference that you guys were organizing and then i sort of met all of you it all finally came together in marrakesh and now it went from something where i felt like i needed to do something but i didn't know what to a bunch of pretty specific things that feel like we can work on and so i you know i'm really really uh thankful for that experience and wanted to sort of drag you onto the video because um the way you walked me through everything um was so logical and 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 helpful so i don't know maybe you can start out first by kind of introducing yourself and ci and kind of the path that you're on good if you were going to ask me to remember what i told you <laughs> in marrakesh i could never do that <laughs> um uh, so my name is Peter Seligman, and I started an organization called Conservation International 30 years ago, and still am uh, privileged to be able to lead that organization. And, and, and yeah, go ahead. And I, I, my background is I studied wildlife ecology. My first work actually was uh, working on grizzly bear studies in uh, in uh, Yellowstone and uh, birds of prey work. Uh, in the Grand Tetons, and that was in the mid-70s, uh, early 70s, um, um, and then kind of evolved over time to a broader interest in biodiversity and eventually to the recognition that um, nature is actually going to survive one way or the other what humanity does to it, but humanity is going uh, to really be hammered hard, and we better figure out why we need nature and how do we secure and protect nature and yeah and i think that was i mean with i talked to christopher yesterday too but that's sort of the interesting thing is i think a lot of the conservation like when i was watching mutual of omaha and stuff like that you see sort of nature absent man and somehow we have right. to protect this thing but it's it's really sort of it seems like the framing is how do we flourish um in a system where uh we're not destroying it and it's not destroying us. And, 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 you know, I think some of the things that I want to talk to you about indigenous people and I mean, it, 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 it used to work really well and we're sort of in this funny state where it's going out of balance, but, but can you tell me a little bit about like how CI has sort of evolved in the last 30 years? Sure. Uh, so in uh, 1987, um, I worked for the nature conservancy and uh, helped them launch their international program. And uh, the focus when we started the organization was on a simple premise that that in emerging nations where where uh, there is an enormous amount of poverty, asking a community to protect nature without that community being a beneficiary could make them feel guilty, but wouldn't solve a problem. And so the purpose when we started thinking about this. Uh, at the Nature Conservancy, actually, was how do you blend conservation with economic health? Um, at that time, that didn't fit in with what the Nature Conservancy was interested in doing. And so they uh, uh, they decided that, uh, that uh, how do I put this nicely? Um, I think they just fired me. 
Um, and uh, and so the people that were working in this group uh, on international conservation at the Conservancy started Conservation International. Um, and it was interesting because the the person that was with us that sat outside our 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 hotel room when we decided we got to keep this effort going was Murray Gelman, a Nobel mm-hmm. Prize winning physicist who was the chair of the Resources Committee of the MacArthur Foundation. Yep. And and he was a real, you know, he just said you got to keep this group together and keep thinking about how do you link conservation and economic development. And that's how we began. Uh, it was, uh, but the focus was on how do you protect biodiversity and what are the benefits that people can get so they'll protect biodiversity. Um, and that was really what we did. Uh, the other thing that we focused on was science. We really thought that it was essential to have good science. And, and there was a fellow by the name of Gordon Moore, who was obviously a phenomenal uh, engineer and chemist, uh, you know, a great thinker uh, who, uh, um, who started, uh, came up with Moore's Law and started Intel. And, uh, and Gordon and I spent a lot of time talking about what kind of science was needed so that you could actually have a predictive biodiversity conservation science. And so we started something called the Center for Applied Biodiversity Science, and it was really how can you have a, fact on a, a scientific-based approach to conservation. The next thing we focused on was economics. You know, how do you actually uh, fit conservation into the economic framework of nations and communities? And nations and communities have different perspectives. Communities need a little bit more wealth so they can get the things that they don't have. Uh, nations are looking for a really transformative, uh, you know, big leap forward. Uh, and and that led us into you know analysis of of uh, how do you deal with with the, the the debt burdens of emerging nations and how do you reduce debt in exchange for conservation and it was the concept of debt for nature and then we had a whole enterprise group that just worked with communities on on what were the non-timber products in these tropical nations and we were working in in Bolivia and Costa Rica and Cambodia and the Philippines many tropical forested nations you know, what, what were the non-timber forest products that could generate wealth without cutting down trees? Um, and ideas emerged that were, were creative ideas that were new to us and new to this, you know, conservation movement, but they were actually not new. Uh, one of the things that we discovered was a fruit of a palm tree called the tagua fruit, which when you crack it, it looks like ivory. And we found that we could make buttons out of this. And this was in Ecuador. And so we went to companies, Patagonia, uh, Smith and Hawk, and the Gap, and we said, if, if these communities can make buttons out of this 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 nut, uh, would you buy them and put them on your shirts? And so we began to develop relationships between communities and enterprises where there was a, a product that could be harvested and generate wealth for communities that didn't require cutting trees. And that shifted from, you know, you know. I, Tagua buttons to chicle for chewing gum to chate for 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 flower arrangements. Uh, eventually, to to uh, how do you grow coffee without cutting down a forest? Can you do it in the in the in the shade? And that was kind of what we learned. But the focus was always on 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 a specific high biodiversity site. And over the course of the years, we began to work with other with companies because we thought we've got to get companies to change their behavior. And we ended up working with companies that had bad reputations. We worked with Walmart and found that actually the young people in Walmart wanted to do good things. 
as uh, and the leadership embraced these. So it kind of we basically decided to kind of erase all of our prejudices and try to figure out which were the institutions that if we could transform their behavior, it could have a big biodiversity conservation impact. And that's how we started the organization. And we were successful um, in protecting places that we refer to as biodiversity hotspots, you know, the areas of the greatest concentration of species endemism. Uh, but it was about 10 years ago, I was about to give a talk and I was thinking about all of our successes and the hundreds of millions of acres of tropical forests and oceans that we'd work collaboratively with people to protect. And I realized that if you added all that up, it was it was a big number and it was actually uh, about a 30 mile wide strip around the equator, around you know the planet. And I thought, well, that's a lot until I looked at the a globe and realized that 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 30 mile strip was like the width of that perforated line that goes right around the equator. And I thought, that's actually not very much. And what we have done is identified places that were important, but we had not changed development. And the greatest force was this drive country by country to develop. And I thought, so as we've had success in protecting particular places, extinction rates had accelerated, climate change was completely weird fisheries were collapsing and i basically thought if we just focus on biodiversity we are going we're, we're losing and not only will biodiversity lose but the gravest threat was humanity was going to lose because we would no longer have these vibrant healthy diverse ecological systems that could support life and and could maintain this 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 framework of ecological systems that creates clean air and fresh water and 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 all the diversity of, of life that we share the planet with that we depend upon. And it was a transformative moment for me because I realized that that we were on a path to failure. And and that convinced me that CI needed to change its mission from protecting biodiversity to a mission of supporting human well being by protecting nature and ecological systems that we depend upon. And and uh, and I thought that was was very important. Unfortunately, many of the people that work with me were really focusing on the biodiversity side solely, and so it took a while for everyone to understand that that uh, uh, that if we did not focus on transforming the way development takes place, mm -hmm. we didn't change what. I refer to as the global agents of change, you know, the big companies, the big foundations, the big government, so that they saw that it was in their enlightened self-interest to protect nature. Nature was going to be squeezed, pulverized, disappear, and humanity was going the same way. And that was the transformative moment. And then we found out how difficult it was to change, mm -hmm. that it was easier to have that change of vision but harder to figure out how to actually measure that success and harder to really prove that we need nature. And, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the path. That's the journey that we, we have been, been traveling. And, you know, and one of the things at the conference to me that was, uh, uh, you know, was kind of stunning was when you brought all of the indigenous people in. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, what, 
I, I mean, and the, and the point that I tried to make in my presentation, because it was funny because it was alongside COP22 where they were negotiating and arguing about, you know, incentives and, and, um, and, and I think those are all interesting and important. And, 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 you know, the, 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 the person that I really was reading before the conference was, um, Danella Meadows, um, and her, uh, uh, interventions in sort of, um, system dynamics. And, 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 you know, the, the, the example that I, I gave in the talk was that, uh, um, you know, Monopoly originated in 1903 with the landlord's game, which, um, was a game to teach kids how, uh, um, you know, how capitalism would destroy uh, people and make them bankrupt. And that Parker Brothers just changed the goal to become a capitalist and destroy everybody else's winning rather than um, a game to teach people how bad capitalism was. And they didn't have to change any of the rules, but they were able to completely change the game. And and I, I sometimes feel that um, that the values and the goals of society um, unless you change those you can fiddle with the rules and you can fiddle with the parameters and it's important to do what you can because sometimes you know we, we might have to assume that we can't change the goals but I think the real leverage is to change because I think if, if, if our kids felt like uh, you know waste was disgusting that more than enough was too much if you know, if if the culture fundamentally changed to a culture where we're not, because right now, I mean, you, you and I both um, probably logically know how awful our footprint is to the climate, but somehow we've gotten accustomed to it, and I think we're accustomed to hanging out with people who um, measure their value by how much they spend. And right. I think, you know, even though we realize it's not okay, we don't feel disgusted by it in the way that somebody could. And, and I think what's interesting when meeting some of the indigenous people that you brought um, to this conference is, you know, they might not feel disgusted, but they would never try to spend what we spend or consume what we consume, right? It just doesn't, wouldn't, doesn't make any sense. And the, and the story that you, you gave about the Aborigines just wanting to have this sort of constant sustainability and, and seem, you know, not even human to the, to the Europeans. And so, 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 it, you know, I think on the one hand, I think what, what was the percentage that you said? It was 20%, 25% of all yeah. land is. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, it's really fascinating. The, 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 what we, what we began to think about, um, was as we looked at all the governments and the political process that they go through and the agony they go through to make sure that everything's fair and 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 in their self-interest uh, you basically see a system that's frozen uh, and and that's that's frightening and so what we began to think about is how can we have a transformation dealing with climate that doesn't require governmental permission mm -hmm. And, and that was the purpose of that gathering that was parallel to the COP. I mean, while the politicians were meeting in their blue zones and green zones, uh, uh, we had this separate gathering with you, Joey, and with the others to think about, are there any breakout ideas that can transform the way we deal with climate that, does, that do not need permission? Because... Obviously, that's what has to happen. I mean, mm -hmm. we need that kind of grassroots emergence, 
I mean, you, your description in your book, Whiplash, about emergent ideas is exactly what we need. Uh, so, uh, and it's a great book, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and so the idea, so, so what came to my attention from our science team was uh, that 24% of the earth, plus or minus, is controlled by local communities and indigenous peoples. Now, that's a big number. It used to be 100%, but mm -hmm. it's 24%. And 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 what's fascinating is on that twenty four percent are eighty percent roughly of the biodiversity and of the intact ecological systems. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to deal with climate change, those ecological systems must be secured because that's where the biodiversity is that will give us the resilience, the genetic resilience, the biodiversity resilience to be able to adapt to what we're going through climatically mm -hmm. and it will get more intense. So we need to really focus on protecting those ecological systems. And if we're going to keep carbon from being put into the atmosphere, you know, nature is an essential partner. Mm -hmm. And we can actually solve 30% of that CO2 emissions challenge with look by looking at, at forests, at land use, at how we deal with soils, and how we deal with oceans and blue carbon. I mean, mangroves, salt marshes, mm -hmm. um, um, and, and uh, salt grasses, uh, and sea grasses, rather. And so what we thought was, let's focus on those indigenous peoples and local communities, because they actually have the ability, in many cases, to make their choices and decisions on how they take care of their landscapes without getting the government's permission. Mm. Now, that's not in all cases, but mm. that is a majority of the case. And they have been marginalized. Uh, they have been mistreated. They have not had equity or justice. Mm -hmm. And so our thought was, let's focus on those communities, let's mm -hmm. figure out what are the need. Let's listen to them. And so a lot of what we did at this latest meeting uh, in Marrakesh was meet with communities, with indigenous peoples. And we brought many of those over to that separate gathering that mm -hmm. was called, uh, that, that we did with the Emerson Collective called the Do Fest mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. doing things. Um, uh, but those have been partners of ours for a long time. And we wanted to hear what they need and figure out what's an equitable way a long-term, fair way to give them the resources that they need to make their choices as to what they want to do with their eco with their landscapes, and and so we highlighted at this meeting uh, collaborations with the Maasai, who mm -hmm. control the watersheds of Mombasa, uh, with the Cook Islanders uh, who control an area of ocean that's equivalent it's two million square kilometers. It's it's bigger than the state of Alaska. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, with the Amerindians who who control vast amounts of the the Amazon and the Guyana Shield rainforests, which are massive carbon sinks, uh, and that was really and others, and mm -hmm. and that's the partnership that we really want to focus on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to uh, to and and so that's that's what we talked about, mm -hmm. and uh, and we have received enthusiastic uh, uh, response from these communities because. They've been waiting for someone to listen to them mm -hmm. and waiting for someone to not just listen, but to actually put together the what they need, the resources, the mm -hmm. education platforms, the access to technology uh, that will actually be useful for them in in their lives. And so that's that's what we're focusing on. And, and I think the, the, the key thing, and I think about it from sort of a design lens, but I, I feel like, you know, there's a there's a lot of culture and uh, 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 sort of a, how do I put it, a sensibility that we 
can learn because I think you know what 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 we what I think a lot of Western obsession with growth is really just kind of a cancer that was sort of marginally um, sustainable in the past just because there were so much resources outside, but is now you're right it, it, on track to eliminate us. And I think it's it's kind of like how you neutralize some of the goals that cause this cancer might come from the sensibilities of these people. On the other hand, I think that some of our science and some of our technology can be helpful in trying to figure out how to uh, deploy some of the ideas that we have. But I think what's interesting, and this is kind of what at the Media Lab we try to do, um, is uh, to not try to pre-design everything and then just plop it in, but to design things with the people who are going to be using it. You know, And so w whether we're in East Detroit or whether we're in Nairobi, um, we try not to come in with solutions, but to bring scientists and kids who have skills and have knowledge work together. And I think, I think that the, the thing that I found that was kind of interesting was just listening to you guys talk is the, is the language that I think we're going to have to develop where you can map what they mean onto what we think and that they understand, yeah. you know, and, and because, because I, I think it's, it's a new kind of science. I mean, I think scientists in the past have been very object oriented. They look at one particular scale and one particular molecule to intervene on one particular disease. And they don't look at, they didn't look at systems and getting scientists to right. think in systems is I think really, really important. And, and I think a lot of these um, communities naturally think in systems, right? Whether they're talking about navigation or, or, or cultivation. And so, so that, and, and I think, I think, um, you know, yesterday Christopher was talking about humility being a really key piece. And I think that that's also the thing that I sensed at the, at the meeting that we had, which was, um, I mean, myself included, all of us were in awe listening to these, these people articulate the way they think about things. And I think that that, that developing that uh, common communication language seems to be something else that, that you're doing well. I, you know, I think that you're, it's really important that you highlight this because it's, it's not just that we have to, most of us don't have the ability to hear what they're saying. Most, and there is, I mean, if you go, if you look at the, the native Hawaiian culture and, and you look at the hula, at the dance, or you look at the tattoos, you know, these are not entertainment and they're not just kind of, this is what I want to put on my body right now. This is a connection to, to history. It's a connection to, to their, their genealogy and their, their origins and their faith and what they understand and what they've learned. And all of these cultures belong. They see themselves as belonging to nature. It's, it's not that it's one against the other. It's, we are nature. Mm -hmm. And, and that wisdom and that, that understanding is profound in them. We in Western civilization have always looked at nature as something that we were going to conquer. Yeah. Man versus That's nature. <laughs> it's been our quest is to make it better, to, to either make it more productive, to, make it better to conquer it. Uh, and and so in my heart and what I believe is that there are profound and essential lessons that we need to learn from cultures. And many of these cultures, if you listen to Wade Davis speaking, mm -hmm. many of these cultures are being eradicated also. And as they disappear and as their languages disappear and as their way of connecting disappear with nature, we lose 
and and the world loses. And so an important part of what we want to do is learn how to listen, learn how to hear, and be able to capture the wisdom that they have so that Western civilizations can transform how we look at this planet and at this nature and at this biosphere. Um, and, uh, and treasure this place because we belong here. We belong to it. Uh, we belong to her, however you want mm -hmm. to describe it. Uh, and, and fortunately, um, there are people who still have connections. You, you mentioned the Pacific Islanders. Um, you know, one of the most important developments in the last 30 years has been uh, the reawakening of this knowledge that 11,000 years before Columbus discovered North America, quote, the, what we all were raised on that knowledge, mm -hmm. which obviously is not correct, um, um, Pacific Islanders were sailing across the Pacific following wave patterns and birds and tides and looking at stars. Um, and and they have a deep knowledge of that part of the world uh, that's really extraordinary. And the way they traveled was in these giant canoes, vacas. Mm -hmm. And so 30 years ago, those canoes, the designs reemerged and, and some people recreated the vacas. And what was really important was that they brought them to some of these cultures in the Pacific Island nations that really had lost contact with their own roots mm -hmm. and there's been an awakening in the pacific islanders of their own knowledge and where they've come from and how they navigate and and that is moving all across the pacific mm -hmm. and so there's this growing recognition that these 13 or these 15 islands that are scattered throughout the south pacific different nations all are one people they're unified in that they all belong to the ocean and they have a commitment to secure and protect the ocean. And they see it, it's essential for them, for their enlightened self-interest, and they see it as being essential for the rest of the world as well. Mm -hmm. And and we could see the same thing happening in tropical forests. We could see the same thing happening in sub-Saharan Africa. We could see the same thing happening in the boreal forests, in the Arctic. Wherever there are traditional peoples that have deep knowledge, there's so much we can learn from them, mm -hmm. and it's so much in our interest to learn and to work effectively to protect their ecological systems. Um, because if we don't, we have a biodiversity crisis, a desertification crisis, mm -hmm. and a climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important for us to to and and we can make these changes. And this is why I'm so excited about it. These can be made. These decisions can be made by these communities. They don't have to go to the United Nations to get any permission. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what we have to really focus on. And I think that you're right in that, that science that is not informed by these lost traditions that have been tested over so many generations is much poorer. Mm -hmm. and, and so we need to, to mm -hmm. take advantage of the creativity in the media lab and other science networks so that we can we can figure out how do we understand it and then how do we share it mm -hmm. there, there's a comment on the on facebook about you know sustainable sustainable things being expensive and the financial part but i i feel like 
part of this is also on the on the cultural level like the like because because biodiversity one of the reasons that i i understand we need biodiversity is that when the environment changes or when something changes the diversity allows a complex system to self-adapt and those stocks of different animals and dna whether it's a human body healing damage or it's a ecosystem that's trying to um, you know, fend off an invasive species or fill a hole because something disappeared. The biodiversity is what allows it to be resilient, right? And, and I feel like the, it's culturally similar, right? So we've, we have a current rampant Western culture, which is very sort of obsessed with measuring value by accumulation of wealth and power. But, you know, I have my, uh, uh, Tenzin Priyadarshi, who I teach my awareness class with. He's a monk. Um, he doesn't own, a home. He owns nearly nothing. He's mostly intrinsically motivated. You know, he would be happy being in a cave meditating all the time. He tried to get a job at, in my lab and not get paid, but MIT said he had to get paid and he asked for a dollar and they said, no, you have to get. So he was the first person that actually tried to negotiate for as little money down. as possible down. <laughs> but, but, but what's interesting is he's got a complete worldview that is a very, very small footprint worldview, but he's probably one of the happiest people I know. And I, would, I wouldn't I would ask that everyone become a monk, but he's got a culture and a worldview and a lifestyle that might actually be quite useful if and when we need to go there. And so I think one of the meta questions really is, okay, well, it may not, it may not be financially feasible to have the same lifestyle that you have and still be sustainable, but you could always change your lifestyle, you know, and we may be a little bit too old to change lifestyles, but I think that, that, because, because I've been, and I mentioned this to you earlier, but like, if you look at like the punk rock movement or the Beatles, any of these music or the hippies, I mean, there were tons of kids that made substantial lifestyle changes very quickly across the world, across classes. And I feel like when, uh, you know, and, and again, this is, this is sort of a, it was praying to the, to the, the, the god of emergence here. But, 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 but if you believe that complex adaptive systems sort of try to self-correct, I feel like if you have the cultural elements and you have a world that starts to suffer from and get really damaged, um, that maybe the people will start to say, well, maybe we do need to have, because even kids these days, I think, don't buy as many cars, you know, the whole, what we're calling the sharing economy, which is, uh, you know, I don't, I think it's a different sharing than the kind of sharing that I think about, but still less ownership. You know, I, I think some of those cultures that we see, I mean, in addition to the sort of understanding of nature, they also have this kind of sensibility about it that I don't, I don't know whether that translates into popular culture, but, but, but even if you look at the Beatles, you know, they were heavily influenced by um, Indian music and Indian culture. And you could see the, the, the Beatles sort of evolving sort of in that, in that, uh, you know, more hippie direction sort of later in their career. But, but, but I, I'm also curious about how we bring some of these cultural elements in to try to change change people's lifestyle because I think lifestyle um, is also a significant um, burden on our system right now. So uh, there's so much there. I mean, the, the, let me give, let me look at two questions. And the first is that wealth does not bring happiness. All. And so, so let's just look at like, what are the things that we're pursuing in life? And, and, um, and happiness and contentment is one of those things. And so if you just look at that, which is why your friend, the monk, 
is you know he's searching for for happiness and buying things doesn't necessarily do that uh, and so so unfortunately the message that we get in day in and day out through media is buy this buy that get this get that this one's obsolete get the new one um and so so i do think it's really important to to kind of remember that what should drive us are our core values and and that we need to really elevate those and i think that that's a once you begin to get to that place you can begin to make the adjustments that you're you're speaking about and i also think that the the question of sustainability being expensive is actually incorrect um the reason that we have to focus on sustainability is that it is going to break us if we don't mm -hmm. You know, we will have more people immigrating, more people fleeing where they are because they cannot survive. We will have crisis of no water. We will have battles over food. Uh, we will have uh, war. Um, and 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 so um, sustainability is not something that is kind of something for the rich. Sustainability is essential for all people. Nature is the treasury of the poor. It's what gives everybody sustenance. And so um, if, if we do not deal with sustainability, we will go broke. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that, that any nation that does not secure, uh, we need to look at, you know, we've got a series and anybody who's watching this should go online to either nature is speaking or to conservation.org and look at Nature is Speaking. But it's a series of two-minute videos, or about eight of them, and we have them in Mandarin and Spanish and English and Portuguese and French. Uh, look at the English versions if you're speaking English. And, and each one of them is what would nature say to people if nature had a voice? And these pieces were developed by a man named Lee Clow, who was actually Steve Jobs' branding, marketing, communications guru who did the Think Different campaign. Mm -hmm. And in them, they basically say, it's like soil is Edward Norton. And he says, you know, you treat me like dirt. You turn me into dust. Don't you realize that everything you eat comes from me? Or Harrison Ford is ocean. You know, or Penelope Cruz is fresh water and Julia Roberts is mother nature. And the message is simple. Taking care of nature is not an option. It's absolutely essential. So, so if we look at sustainability as just an extra expense, we are going to drive ourselves to extinction. And therefore, we need to really be thinking about how to do it. Plus, what we're finding is that, is that it's not more expensive to produce things sustainably. Uh, if it's seen as just like a rare thing that has to create, that you create an extra process for, yes, like it's, we're going to do trans fats and organics. And if we do the organics just in a little bit of a quantity, that's extra expensive. But if we actually transform how we produce things mm -hmm. and do it in a healthy way, in a, in a way of, of volume, it's actually not more expensive. So, so, you know, I think that there's some really important questions that we need to address. And I think we have to be very, very careful that we don't do things because they're politically correct. We have to be really honest and objective about what we're trying to achieve. Uh, and we need to uh, 
to uh, really embrace understanding cultures, historic knowledge, traditional knowledge, and science. Mm -hmm. We have to really blend them together so we can find a kind of a thoughtful path to finding coming up with solutions. And there's one one um, guy, uh, Sadesh, who is asking, why can't we? Why can't there be a global law that could enable every all countries to be uh, sustainable, like we have strict global laws for terrorism and um, equally serious acts? So, that, so I mean, and that's what the COP meetings have been trying to do, right? And so, so wh why why is it that that um, you know when we wage war, um, not all the time, but we can usually get countries to obey? Um, treaties, but with, for some reason with climate change, it just doesn't seem, I mean, it, it, it's sort of happening, but, uh, you know, not really. I mean, is that, what, what, what's, what's wrong there? Well, it's, it's, you know, when we started these climate negotiations, uh, it was, when we started CI, we anticipated climate change. We saw that there was there were things taking place, and but we were talking about something called the greenhouse effect. Do you remember that mm -hmm. the greenhouse effect? Uh, uh, so so now today, what's fascinating is that you have 190 countries that went to Paris and signed the deal. And if you think about that, that's really quite remarkable because it's probably the largest global agreement that's ever been reached. And so so I'm very encouraged by the fact that that happened. I'm discouraged. Because the reason it happened is that most nations are actually experiencing this, this brutal impact of climate change. And we also need to understand is that all nations don't look at the world in the same way. I mean, there is a large geopolitical axis. You know, the Russians and the United States and Europe and China have these high-powered conversations. You know, and you can throw India into that. I mean, big power geopolitical you know, discussions. But then you've got Suriname and Guyana and you have Kiribati and the Cook Islands and you have Tanzania and you have Liberia and you've got, you know, most of the countries are small nations and they really want a global agreement because they are really afraid of the impact. And so what I see is a momentum towards an agreement. Um, there will always be those outliers that will say, you know, it's not it's not in our self-interest. But I actually think that we're getting to the place where we're going to overcome that. And the reason is that there's a massive power in social media today. And social media shines a light on what on behaviors. And if you do something good, you're a partner. If you do something bad, you're a predator. Plus, most schools in the world are now talking about sustainability. Uh, most businesses are thinking about the security of their supply chains. And so we're in a time when, when we haven't gotten to the place where there's, there's a homogeneic view of it, but more people than ever and more countries and businesses than ever are actually thinking that there is a challenge. So I don't know we're going to have a global law, but I do think just in the response to, to, you know, the discussions about whether the United States is going to pull out of the Paris negotiations uh, in the next administration, there was, which, which I cannot imagine we would do. But if we were, there has been a global response saying, well, then we will put a tariff on products that have high carbon. In other words, we'll use trade laws to prevent this from happening. And business sector is really worried about that. So, so, you know, it's a 
the global system, the UN system, is unbelievably clumsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad they have those conversations. I prefer not to wait for them to come to conclusions, <laughs> right. which is why we're really pushing hard for what can we do as individuals and in how mm-hmm. we buy and who we support, who we vote for. Mm-hmm. What are the actions we can do that are transformative, like collaborating with 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 communities and indigenous peoples? Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's what we have to drive for. Yeah, and and that that's I guess that that totally makes sense. I mean, that's you you found a a leverage point, I think, where where you don't have to ask permission, you don't have to wait, and you can move forward very quickly, and then you can set an example for others. Um, I do, I, and it may have been that I was just in this little bubble with all of us in Marrakesh, but I felt like a, a different mood, like a bunch of stuff was coming together, whether it was the people who were funding it, um, our MIT scientists were there kind of in force, um, kids at MIT are are kind of activated and like you said i mean i think certain actors can try to do bad things but it's getting harder and harder um, to be stupid and and like this the the, the dakota you know pipeline thing um you know it, it may still we may still you know lose that but the amount of uh sort of global attention to stuff like that is just tremendous and i think that that it, it does feel like there's a a movement that's coming and that it's gonna it's you know just sort of being stupid about this is going to be, get harder and harder. Hopefully, um, I don't know how yeah, optimistic who, you are, but who's gonna, I agree with you. I mean, who's going to want to buy coal? I mean, it, it's it, it's it's not that mining. It's not that the job of a miner is bad. It's burning that stuff is bad. Mm-hmm. And 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 any country around the world that is looking at their carbon footprint, and they all are now, is going to not pick. S- CO2 enriched or laden coal as their, as, as their fuel. And, and the good news, and we talked about this at, uh, at this uh, gathering in Marrakesh is uh, I think it was Jonathan Pershing said that the price of uh, solar uh, was down to 2.9 cents. Is that what it was? 2.9? I, I thought it was, I'm not, I'm not sure, but, but, but the recent, you mean the one that they, the UAE, the, 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 the bid yeah, that they did, right? Was, yeah. But but that it it had basically break broken the cost uh, for I guess the build out of fossil fuels right yeah it was cheaper now yeah I mean that's what's going to happen and so so I think of this drive for sustainability as being one of the most significant and transformative stimulants of global economies. Every single industry that I know of is trying to understand what are the breakthroughs. And research labs, scientists, engineers, I mean, those are all jobs. And that's the creativity. It's as if we've arrived, you know, that old adage, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what we're, ha- that's what's happening right now. I mean, you're looking at big companies like Walmart trying to figure out, you know, how do we eliminate waste in our past? And it's not just because they want to be good for the world. It's because they save a billion dollars a year, you know, they don't have to take that stuff to the garbage dump anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing all sorts of important transformations. Um, I mean, coffee producers are trying to figure out how do we stop climate change because climate change is destroying the areas that grow coffee. I mean, it's and we see that in every sector now. Mm-hmm. So this is I see this as an extraordinarily exciting time. But the but the 
the sober part of the conversation is we will still see a lot of disruption and displacement and pain. And that even if we go all out, even if we stop burning anything right now, we're still going to, uh, see a lot of pain, right? I mean, it's, 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 just, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm excited at, because it feels like everybody's yes, starting totally to move, right. you're, you're, but it's, but totally it's, right. it's going to suck for a lot of people. And I think that that's the other side, right? That is, you're totally, that's a really important thing to point out. I mean, we are in, we are in the age of adaptation. I mean, mm-hmm. we screwed it up really badly. We are in the age of adaptation. We are going to be hit. I mean, one of our, our guests or a couple of our guests uh, in Marrakesh were the leaders, traditional leaders, as well as the formal leaders of island nations. Uh, the, 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 the people of Kiribati, this island nation in the South Pacific, it's, what's it, 6,000 miles due west of Los Angeles, uh, right where the international dateline and the equator cross. 32 atolls, the highest one is three meters high. I mean, they will be gone. They've got at most 50 years before their islands are submerged. And so they're thinking, can they, you know, build bulwarks? Can they build walls? Can they, can they transport their people to other places? Um, so, so the, the danger and the harm is not in the future. It's right now. I mean, it's so, so we need to accelerate in our reduction of, of CO2 emissions. We have to be really you know, intensively focused on on finding solutions. And we have to be extremely generous in taking care of the nations and the communities that are under stress and are being harmed. Well, I, I hear some Thanksgiving sounds behind you. I've got some Thanksgiving sounds behind me too. So we probably should wrap up and go back. But I, I we're, we're very excited to work with you guys. I think that... Um, I think it's a two-way thing because I, I, I think that, that, that thinking about climate conservation and systems is a really, really good way to train scientists to be system thinkers. And I, I also think it's a, it's a, it's a, a culturally a, a really great experience in addition to the fact that it's probably the most important problem we can be working yeah. on right now. Yeah. I feel the same way about working with you, Joey, and with the, the team at MIT. Uh, you said something that, that is, when we were together, which is very powerful, is that we are dealing with an extraordinary complex ecological system that's interconnected with an extraordinarily complex uh, societal system. And everything, in fact, every component of everything we're dealing with is itself a part of a system. So so these are not easy solutions, uh, but uh, uh, there are some big patterns and there are some some ways to to clarify our behaviors and i guess for me at the heart of this is this willingness to collaborate to listen um and uh, and really just to be energized to find some answers uh, we can't we it's no longer good enough to have a conversation about it and hopefully now we, we have to actually act and hopefully we can get some diving in while we're at it I love that too. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. Let's, let's connect thanks, again Joey. soon. Thanks for this. Okay, so All right. Long. All right. Thanks. Bye.